Hello everyone and welcome to this um, UCL lunch hour lecture on COVID and gender equality. Um, our speaker today was supposed to be me, but I have developed a bit of a cough, um, which is very topical for this lecture, uh, which uh, makes it a bit difficult for me to speak for a prolonged periods of time and not very pleasant to listen to as well. But um, Professor Alex Bryson has kindly agreed to do this lecture instead. Um, so a few words about Alex. Um, Alex is a professor at Quantitative Social Science at UCL's um, Social Research Institute. Um, he's an applied labor economist with background in sociology. His work focuses on uh, work and employment relations and covers a wide range of topics, uh, gender pay gap being one of them, as well as gender equality, amongst many others. And Alex and I work together um, with a couple of other colleagues that will be acknowledged in this presentation as well um, uh, on the project that investigates gender wage gap over the life course and across cohorts um, using British cohort studies, where Alex is a principal investigator of the project. And in today's presentation, uh, he will cover part of the work that we conducted on this project, focusing on the implications of COVID for gender equality a year into the COVID pandemic. So uh, using data collected from February, March, 2021. And um, just before we begin, I wanted to let you know that there is um, uh, there will be time at the end for questions. So this can be submitted, <coughs> sorry, this can be submitted on Slido during the talk at any time. Um, so if you go into Slido, if you type in your browser sli.do, um, then there will be a, a pop-up window where you can put the hashtag gender equality as a code event, and it should take you to the website where you can submit your questions um, that I will monitor throughout the lecture. But um, unless it's any clarification questions that make it clearly impossible to understand the rest of the lecture, we will, we will keep them um, until, to, until the end. So um, thank you very much for attending, and uh, thank you to Alex for stepping in, and over to you, Alex. Thank you very much indeed, Regina. Uh, that's the presentation. Hopefully you can see that. Can you, Regina? So yes, Regina, as she said, was present was going to be the presenter. So she's done all the hard work on this. It is indeed a project with a bunch of other people, uh, three of them from the Social Research Institute, Francesca Foliano, Heather Joshi, and David Wilkinson. And the two papers that we're going to be talking about today are also done with our colleague at the Institute of Fiscal Studies, also professor of economics at Bristol, Monica Costa Diaz. So the topic is about uh, the role of the pandemic and how it's affected labor market uh, gender inequality in two key respects, labor market participation, and wages. And in order to explore this issue, we're going to use the UK birth cohort studies. So the first paper, uh, there's already a working paper available at that web link there that you can directly download, is about uh, gender inequality with regard to employment participation one year into the pandemic. And that's an important point because most of the studies you'll be familiar with 
investigated these sorts of issues earlier on in the pandemic. And we're seeing implications over a slightly longer period of time, one year into the pandemic, uh, when some of the worst effects uh, were starting to be alleviated. And then the second paper, which is very much preliminary and exploratory at the moment, uh, we're gradually making progress on it, will look at the implications of the pandemic for the pay gap between men and women, and specifically those who remained persistently employed. So that is to say they were identified as being in paid work with a wage just before the pandemic, and then still in paid work a year later. So let's give you a little bit of background, first of all, regarding uh, what's been happening to the gender pay gap over time. It's something that we've um, studied extensively uh, during the course of our project, but here we're drawing on uh, information from other studies going back to the early 1970s. And you'll see a red bar shows a simple uh, raw gap between men's and women's earnings expressed as the female to male ratio of hourly pay. And then the blue bar does the same thing, but it adjusts for differences in human capital, specifically uh, experience in the labor market and qualifications. Uh, and what you'll see there, of course, is that the gap does close somewhat. Uh, when you condition on those things such that you're comparing like individuals. The other thing you'll see from the chart, of course, is that the bars are getting higher as we move from left to right. That means the gender wage cap is closing gradually over time. Even so, you'll see at the end of the period, uh, according to Nicole Fortin's paper back in 2015, there's still a raw gap of roughly 18%, which even when you condition such that you get like individuals, like men and women with similar human capital investments, there's still a gap of about 10% uh, that's unexplained. Now, uh, there've been some good things happening in the labor market over time. And human capital in particular is important because what we found is in the old days, men would have had a higher education than women as shown in this graph, which shows uh, years of births of individuals over time and the education of men and women. So the, um, the, we can see a difference between having any qualifications, these are the um, solid bars, and then tertiary education, which is particularly important, um, closing over time such that by the end of the period that I'm looking at here, women are now uh, more educated than men. And that means other things equal, if people were being paid for their uh, productivity in the labour market, we'd expect that to have a profound impact on closing the gender wage gap. On the other hand, of course, we've got social norms and perceptions about the roles of men and women in the world, both in the home and in the workplace. And rather alarmingly, we, can see, we continue to see the portrayal of women as housemakers and carers, whilst men, as you can see in this uh, government 
advert, which for not, not surprising reasons was pulled rather quickly, the men are relaxing there with their family um, um, in the home, but it's the woman who's caring for the children uh, and doing a lot of the household labor. And that will be an important backdrop to what we are going to be considering uh, today. That was of course pulled, that advert, because there was a recognition that it was perpetuating gender stereotypes. So let's begin, and let's please feel free to interrupt me, Bajina, with any clarification questions that come up from the audience. We'll begin with the first paper, which is about employment participation of men and women over the course of uh, the first year of the pandemic. So this pandemic should be seen in the context of recessions more generally. This isn't the first time <clears throat> that we've seen a profound shock to the economy uh, that has had implications for men's and women's ability to stay in the labor market. People, as we know, will get, will lose their jobs, they'll be dismissed, they'll be made redundant. And in previous downturns, uh, studies suggest that it's men that often take the brunt. This, however, has been seen as a she session rather than a man session with women taking the brunt in relation to the pandemic. There are potential reasons for that, in particular what we're gonna come on to uh, around school closures and the like, and also the fact that this particular uh, recession, which is health related, has had different effects on different people in different parts of the labor market. So the unlucky ones might be those who were caught out and demand for their um, labor may have fallen over time, perhaps because they were customer facing and there are individuals who were uh, no longer able to go to shops and so on. Those sorts of workers may have seen a decline in demand for their labor, whereas other workers, in particular health workers, for example, and social care workers would have seen a profound increase in demand for their labor. So men and women are uh, occupationally segregated in a way that might have had implications for the impact of the pandemic on their labor supply. The government, of course, was very concerned about the potential profound impact that the pandemic might have had on labor demand and introduced, as a result, a massive injection of money, the coronavirus job retention scheme, which underpinned individuals' wages, up to 80% of them over a long period of time. Um, for people in the labour market who went on furlough. And we'll be coming back to that. We had basically, when we were thinking about possible gender differences between, uh, about the impact of the pandemic on men and women, three broad ideas, three hypotheses, as it were, that we were testing in the data. The first related to the occupational segregation to which I've just referred. So women, um, are overrepresented in jobs that may have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic, in particular in sectors such as hospitality and tourism. And that might have made uh, their lives particularly difficult relative to the occupations that men have met, may have been performing. At the same time, women are also more likely to work in sectors that faced increased demand for their labour, namely in health and social care. So a priori, it's not, it's not wholly clear 
whether this occupational segregation uh, will have uh, differentially impacted the demand for labor in a way that could have adversely affected women, but that's something that we thought we should look at. The second hypothesis is based upon um, a, a very old theory coming from Gary Be Becker, a labor economist, who posits the idea that there might be in a household with a couple, a man and women, a man and woman ordinarily, that there might be uh, advantages for that couple um, um, operating efficiently in terms of the allocation of their labor supply in the household. One person perhaps with higher earnings potential, focusing primarily on market labor, doing a paid job, whilst the person with the lower earnings potential might conceivably have stayed more at home to do home-oriented activities, um, such as housework, cleaning, helping children. Now that, of course, is a very traditional view. And as I've already intimated, women are now uh, more better educated than men in the labor market, implying that their potential earnings on average might be higher than their male counterparts. But nevertheless, this is a traditional view and one which may still potentially obtain, raising questions about the extent to which an efficient household allocation of labor may have meant that amongst couples, it could have been women who were less likely to stay in employment when a shock such as the pandemic arose because their potential earnings might have been lower than their male counterparts on average. The third hypothesis relates to another subgroup specifically coupled with children, and in particular, social norms regarding childcare responsibilities. These were particularly important, of course, during the pandemic, because many schools and, and, and childcare facilities were closed either temporarily or permanently, leading to an increased need for parents to care for their children in the home. The question then is, who did that work and what are the implications for their labor supply? As I've said, we focus on a year after the start of the pandemic and this Resolution Foundation chart shows that that is rather an important thing to bear in mind. So we actually um, look at where they're at in February, March, 2021. So to the far, close to the far right of this chart. And you'll see by that point, the proportion of all people who were furloughed employees, although it was still very, very large, had actually fallen relative to the beginning of the pandemic, which you can see in the left of this chart. Um, although the proportion of workers who were partially furloughed uh, had increased a little bit over time. How are we going to examine these questions? Well, we're going to look at four different birth, co birth cohorts. The National Child Development Study is a cohort of people born back in 1958. So as you'll see, they're in their 60s when we did this study. The birth cohort for 1970, the next steps, which is a quasi-birth cohort born in 1989-1990, and then the millennium cohort born 
uh, around the year 2000, who, of course, were only about 20 years old. And so were very, if they were in the labor market at all, they were very early on in their labor market experiences. So we focused on people who were employed uh, just before pandemic and then sought to establish what was happening to them uh, one year on after the pandemic had hit. We're talking about people living in England, Scotland and Wales. We've excluded lone fathers because they are a very small proportion of our sample. And we run simple linear probability regression models. These simply control for certain features, which I'll explain in a minute, when we try and identify the independent effect of being a woman on certain outcomes, which I'm about to show you. And we wait back to the population so we can extrapolate to the population at large. We have some missing data issues. So we make some imputations and include uh, simple indicator variables to identify who we've imputed for to retain our sample sizes. Now we're interested here in this first paper in four specific outcomes. First of all, simply remaining in employment. Remember this sample are all identified as being in employment just before the pandemic came into being. And then we're looking a year later to see whether they remain in employment. And our definition of employment in this first bullet is all of these categories in bold, employed, furloughed, apprenticed, voluntary work, self-employed. Then the second outcome we look at is narrower because we're simply identifying those who are either employed, self-employed or an apprentice and are actually currently working actually doing their paid labor. The third outcome we look at is narrower still. Here we're looking at people who not only were in employment and were currently working, but they were actually in exactly the same job they were in back in March 2020. So these are the most stable of employees, if you like. And then finally and separately, we look at those who went on to furlough. So they're employed, but then they're, uh, they're not uh, really engaged in their paid labor activity because they're on furlough. So those are the outcomes we look at. And then we have we control for or condition for uh, a bunch of variables uh, to try and isolate this gender effect. First of all, we just show some raw differences between men and women. In the second stage, we introduce some basic control variables. So we're comparing men and women having conditioned away their age, the country they're living in, whether or not they are in London, their education levels, their social class as indicated by their parents, and the mode of survey. And then having done that, we try and use these controls to test hypotheses that we're interested in. The first hypothesis you'll recall was about occupational segregation. So we're here, we're going to plug in some job characteristics, specifically the occupation the man or woman was performing, whether they were part-time and whether they were a key worker based upon some information that we've produced ourselves in conjunction 
um, with IFS based on four-digit occupational codes. And here the idea is that if the job segregation issue matters, then perhaps taking account of that will shift the gaps between men and women in a way that will give us insights about the role of occupational segregation. Then in two final pieces of analysis, we're looking at subgroups of individuals in our data. Hypothesis two, you'll recall, is the one about the efficient allocation of labor in the household and is necessarily about couples. What does the man do? What does the woman do? And here we will bring in some information about the nature of the partner and uh, the partner's job characteristics, in particular, what occupation they're doing, whether they're doing it part-time and whether they're a key worker. Recall the idea here is that perhaps if the partner has a more valuable job in the labor market, it's conceivable that will impact the birth cohort members' propensities to supply labor. And then finally, our third hypothesis is another subgroup, couples with children. Those are the only people that will appear in that analysis. And here we're trying to isolate the impact of the number and age of children in the household and how that affects the supply of labor between men and women. Now, I've mentioned that we've got four birth cohorts here. And an important thing to bear in mind is that because they're at, when the COVID pandemic hit, these four birth cohorts were at different stages in their lives, necessarily because they were born at different times. So the 1958 cohort are actually already aged 63 by the time the, co the cohort hits. And their distribution across family types is indicated by the red bits of these bars. So the key point here is that, yes, it's true, some of them have children, but many of them do not. Their children have already left the nest. So our definition of having children is actually who's co-located with you in the household. Yeah. At the other end of the spectrum, you get um, people in uh, Next Steps, for example, age 31. Not surprisingly, a fair few of them still have um, children co-located with them in the household. So it's worth bearing that in mind. The different cohorts contribute differently to these different subsamples based upon whether or not they have children, whether or not they have a partner, and so on. Okay, so now I'm going to go straight to um, some analyses and I'm going to explain that you'll see a bunch of graphs that look something like this um, and so I should explain this carefully. In this graph what you'll see is we have um, um, a grey bar set at zero. That is a, uh, a reference person and in this case the reference is men. And we then compare the um, probability of, for example, in this top quadrant here, remaining in employment as a woman. And so the blue dot here is identifying, this is the probability of a woman remaining in employment relative to a man. And you'll see that there is a lower probability, it's about 2% difference. But 
these whiskers are the confidence intervals around that estimate. And if those confidence intervals overlap with our vertical line, that indicates that that's not a statistically significant difference. Furthermore, we see multiple colored dots and these dots simply represent different models controlling for these different variables as I've discussed already. So the basic controls we bring in first of all, such as where, you, where you're born and social class and so on. And then we start to test our hypotheses. So we bring in for the green dots, job characteristics, the yellow dots, the partner's job characteristics, and then the gray dots, the children in the household. So what we see here in the top left quadrant, for example, is although women on the whole seem to have a slightly lower probability of remaining in employment, remember I'm talking about remaining in employment because all the people in our estimation samples started off being in a job just before COVID hit, and then we're looking a year later. We do see a little bit of evidence that the um, job the occupational segregation, the jobs that women were, were performing, does slightly impact the extent to which remaining in employment relative to men changes, but only very slightly. There's not very much going on here. However, if we look at the propensity of women to be actively working relative to the men, that's the, um, that's this gray bar here, we see all of these dots are to the left of the men, they're all negative, and they're roughly three to five percentage points less likely than male counterparts to be actively working. And this is true, however we condition on um, other variables. Similarly, you'll see women are less likely to be in the same job. Again, three, four percentage points, and that whatever we condition on doesn't make a lot of difference. Where are these women? Well, this is what this final quadrant is telling us. They were much more likely to be on furlough than male counterparts, perhaps by about three percentage points. That doesn't sound like very much, but it is statistically significant. And it's in, regardless of those things that we control. So what we find here is we do find that women are less likely to be actively working, less likely to be in the same job a year later, and more likely to be on furlough than men. Now we take the analysis a little bit further. This time, we look at men and women in different household settings. And here we're testing hypothesis one, really. We're really interested in the way that the green dots move relative to the raw blue dots. And the reference group here isn't just any men, it's partnered men with children. They are standardly viewed as, you know, let's call it male breadwinners. In the old days, they would have been. So these dots are comparing against that reference group. So if we look at women partnered with children, what do we find? We find that they are less likely than men partnered with children to remain in employment. 
This is true when we control for other things. And it's still true, although only on the margins of statistical significance, when we condition on um, their job characteristics, specifically this issue of occupational segregation. So these women partnered with children are clearly, in a sense, either taking a hit or it's possible, and we'll come back to this, whether they've chosen to do this, but nevertheless, whatever the reasons, they are less likely to remain in employment than partnered men with children. It's a bit different when it comes to women who are partnered with no children. We do see a raw difference relative to partnered men with children. When we condition on other factors, in particular, the baseline differences between men and women, this difference disappears. Similarly, women with no partner and no children, there's no significant difference. We don't have that many lone mothers with children in the data, so that's why these confidence intervals are wide, but you do see indications that they are less likely to remain in employment than partnered men with children. When we look to men, we see that when we condition on basic controls, basically any difference between them and the partner men with children disappears. But what we uh, observe in this particular picture is that the probability of remaining in employment is lower for women who are partnered with children and women without a partner with children. So that combination is related to being less likely to remain in employment. And we do exactly the same thing again, but this time for two different outcomes, actively working and being in the same job. So if we look at both these things, again, the women partnered with children are disadvantaged in the sense that they are less likely to be actively working and they're less likely to be in the same job relative to the partnered men with children. And although the type of job that the woman is doing is shifting things a tiny bit, it's really not very much. We also see some evidence that women uh, with no children on the margins of statistical significance here are less likely to be actively working and less likely to be in the same job. And that's true of women no partner or children. So what we're now finding here to some extent when we're looking at active working in the same job, we're finding a difference between men and women, arguably regardless of um, um, the presence of children. When it comes to the men, however, they're pretty much of a muchness once we control the basic things. There are no differences between um, the propensity for active working amongst men who are partnered with no children compared to their counterparts with children, for example. Then we look at furlough. And again, we see this very big difference across, this is all types of women relative to the men who are partnered with children. The women, almost regardless really of uh, household composition, are uh, more likely uh, to be furloughed. And the actual job type that the woman was performing does not appear, at least here, to be 
making much of a difference. Now we come on to um, a very interesting issue, which we've been able to um, consider because we've been able to identify which individuals uh, were key workers, according to government at the time, and therefore were expected to be basically carrying on working. And you'll remember that many of them will be uh, uh, female dominated jobs in, 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 in health and social care, uh, teachers will be amongst them and so on. And what we find here um, is that even amongst key workers, relative to partnered men with children, the probability of being on furlough was higher for the women, even amongst key workers, more likely to be furloughed, which I think is a very interesting finding. You see some hint of it here, even for women who are partnered with no children. So it's the partnership status that might be driving some of this. Amongst the key, the not key workers, of course, you see it across a whole range of women, but for the key workers who were obviously key in the pandemic, dealing with the pandemic, dealing with health problems and so on, or there could have been people delivering things to your door. These key workers, there's a big difference between the propensity uh, of being furloughed, uh, women with children, even women partnered without children relative to men. I say big, I mean, it's, it's statistically significant. It's two to three percentage points. The question of course then is why? Is this choice or we'll come back to that. Um, on hypothesis two, we bring in the idea, and this is the orange dots, that well, maybe the what the job that the partner was doing could matter remember this is about the potential earnings of a man versus a woman in the labor market if it was about the fish efficient household allocation at alagari becca we might see some big shifts when we go to the orange dots but we don't the orange dots often lie directly under the green dots for example yeah so there's not any action here seems to run counter to hypothesis two. If we run to hypothesis three, remember this is the subsample who are uh, uh, with children. Does this make a difference? Again, this would be uh, in and around the idea that perhaps the age and number of children is going to play out in terms of gender differences and the propensity to supply labor and continue to supply labor in the marketplace. But what we find again, is if we look at the gray dots, they lie roughly below the other dots. Then it's not really accounting for the composition of children in the household is really making very little difference. So again, there's not very much support uh, for hypothesis three. So to summarize, we see that um, a year into the pandemic, there remain uh, adverse effects being experienced by women relative to men, especially if they're living with partners and children, even if they were co-workers. What about our hypotheses? Well, 
So not very much support for them. Gender differences in the probability of employment are attenuated, but only a tiny bit when we account for job characteristics. Efficient household allocation doesn't seem to play out and childcare responsibilities, at least adjusting for the presence of children, uh, makes little difference to our previous estimates. So what is going on? Well, there could be something around social norms, expectations uh, regarding who should be looking after the children, who should be doing the housework. Um, and that could well explain why it might be that some women are found, for example, to be on furlough and that there's a higher propensity for that to happen relative to men, even if they are key workers. There might be a component around preferences. Women may prefer uh, conditions offered under a furlough scheme. But of course, it's very hard to distinguish between social norms and preferences if those norms are fully internalized and women are simply responding to expectations from society as a whole. Another possibility is that there could be uh, some employer discrimination going on. It may be that women have been forced to be furloughed at higher rates than, than men by their employers. Yes, it's true that there might be some issues around legality there, but um, nevertheless, it's quite possible that sort of thing may have been going on. Okay, then let's briefly turn to paper two. And here the issue is pay differences. Pay differences amongst people uh, who were in employment before the pandemic and then a year later. And are there any differences in terms of gender? regarding what happened to individuals pay conditional upon them remaining in employment. So our questions are, has the pay gap between men and women changed during COVID? If so, um, did it differ across the different generations? Remember we have multiple birth cohorts here and how does it relate to working from home? And you'll see that we've emphasized this. This is a very big issue. Um, during COVID and may continue to be so. So it might give us some insight to the development of the gender wage gap over the longer run. Remember that we are um, looking here at what we call uh, persistent workers, people who have been in employment before the pandemic and afterwards, and they do look a little bit different to people who were employed pre-pandemic, but not subsequently, in particular, those people who are the persistent workers are more likely to be found in professional occupations, yeah, higher up the earnings distribution. So they are not, um, they are not typical of all the workers um, that we observe pre-pandemic. If you want to know something about the gender wage gap over time, this is your picture. And here we constructed this. We go all the way back to the early 1920s, where amongst full-time manual workers, women were paid, being paid as little as half of men in terms of the raw gender wage gap. This then declined somewhat. It particularly declined over the, um, the Second World War period. When the war came, that made a big, big difference to the gap. And the second big decline happened with the Equal Pay Act in um, the 1970s. 
Since then, we have had some other policy interventions, the national minimum wage and an updating of the Equalities Act in 2010. What you see is a, a gradual convergence, a gradual downward drift in, in, in the gender wage gap, such that by uh, the end of the period, around 2019-2020, you're still talking about um, a pay gap of about 10% between men and women for full-time workers. You can see the same thing. You can look at it in a different way. Here's a cross cohort. So this picture shows you two things. If you take any of these cohorts, uh, let's take, uh, for example, the baby boom, boomers uh, born uh, in the early post-war period, what you see is across age, so across the life course, you see the gender wage gap starts out at relatively low when people are very young, but then it rises. And it rises and rises and rises until uh, men and women reach their 40s. And then it starts to drift downwards again. This is a thing that we've observed and we've shown in some of the papers that we've done. Um, but it stays still fairly high even into people's 60s. But secondly, at any given age, you'll see that the gap falls with newer cohorts. So here are the millennials, the youngest people. The purple line is well below the yellow line, implying that for any given age, the gender wage gap is shrinking. So new cohorts of workers come in. That's what's partly driving the downward drift in the gender wage gap. Now, when we look at um, Differences in pay between men and women. Again, it's, this is a similar chart, but this time we're looking at log hourly pay. Differences between uh, men and women. What you can see is that for these different cohorts, um, there was a lower hourly wage for uh, women compared to men, but that's before you condition on what they were being paid before the pandemic. If you look at that, that's the second dot, the sort of brownie red one. And there you can see that pretty much accounts for the gap. Apart from, with respect to this cohort here, born in 1970, you can see there are some differences and that they are impervious to whatever you control on. So you're talking about a downward drift of 1% to 2% in women's wages relative to men, at least for this birth cohort. This deserves a bit more exploration and examination. The millennium cohort, we see big difference. We see big confidence intervals there. So that, that's difficult because not many of them are actually in employment at the time we observe them. But Regina was very keen to explore the impact of working from home. And this is a graph uh, taken from Nick Bloom's recent Royal Economic Society presentation uh, for the United States which is all about planning post-COVID working arrangements in the United States. And here, three distinctions. Those people who are going to be working fully on site, they're not going to be doing any working from home. And they are about a little over half of the workforce. And these people tend to be frontline employees, mostly non-graduates in low-paid labor. Then there are the hybrid group. People who will be spending at least one day a week working from home in paid labour. Almost a third 
of workers in the United States expecting to do that. And these people tend to be professionals and managers, mostly graduates who are higher paid. And then finally, we have a residual group, not insignificant, 15% of all workers in the US, who are anticipating being fully working from home. And many of these people are in specialized roles, IT support, payroll and contractors. So we've started looking at this in this final slide I want to show you. We've distinguished between these groups, people who, so let's take the 1958 birth cohort down the bottom here. Um, we've got people who uh, were fully working on their employer premises. What do we observe? We see the log hourly wage of the men and the women here, the men's wages slightly above that of the women, but not massively so. What about the working from home group? Well, we see a very big gap between the wages of men and women. Both of them are high paid, yeah? They're higher paid than this bunch down here, fully working from home. But the gap between the men and the women, as in indicated by this line, is big. The hybrid workers, pretty similar, actually. A, a big gap again. If we look at the 1970 birth cohort, working on employer premises, lower paid, but not, a, not that big a gap. Working from home, higher paid workers, big gap. Hybrid, big gap. Raising questions about the implications of working home for the long term. So I'll leave it there, hand it back to you, Bajina. If you want to know more, you can go to our project website. You can email the woman who was behind all of this work or tweet her or talk to her now. Back to you, Bajina. Um, thank you very much, Alex, for, um, for a great presentation, if I do say so myself. <laughs> we have a couple of questions um, in the chat. So the first question is, um, with the new post-COVID social norms, which aspects of the labor market inequalities do you think will no longer be relevant and which will increase in importance? Which, which what bits of the, which? With the new social norms, which, which aspects of the inequalities? So for I guess uh, working from home is probably a new dimension of inequalities that has appeared since. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, it's quite early to say, but it's pretty clear, for instance, from the Nick Bloom presentation, that whereas pre-pandemic about 5% of workers in the United States anyway were working from home, it's now going to, it's going to be 25%. It's gone up by fivefold. So the working from home is going to be really, really important. Um, it, and, and it's unclear a priori, in my view, what the potential impact might be on propensity to work in higher paid occupations and combine it, arguably, you could think of it as a way towards work-life balance, um, possibly. Uh, on the other hand, um, it could impact productivity. And as we've seen here, early signs are that the pay gaps amongst that group are quite high. So working from home is absolutely something we need to be looking at. Um, we've had some insight, I would argue, to the persistence of traditional social norms governing who's doing what, what at home. On the other hand, we do know, 
from time use work done by our colleagues such as Oriel Sullivan, that men actually did step up to some degree with child caring and were co-located with their children, even if they weren't fully caring for them, much more at home during the pandemic. Now, if men have got a taste for that, or in a partnership scenario, people are starting to realize they can organize their working and child caring in different ways. This could lead to different relationships between men and women in the home as well as the workplace. And critically, the biggest thing I think so important, one of the big drivers of gender wage gaps is the design of jobs, particularly the difficulty of balancing work and family life if you're required to engage in long hours working in the employer's premises. If we can move to a world, and I think many employers are doing so, where that's no longer deemed as essential, it's quite possible this will open up opportunities for women to engage in high-wage occupations in a way that they feel comfortable with. So all of these things are on the table at the moment. Um, and it, it's unclear, I think, a priori, precisely what will happen. So even though the primary shock has gone away from COVID, it's shaken things up, given people an experience of the world that they might not otherwise have had, which is making them reflect upon issues around who does what and where, how do we design jobs, what employers' expectations are regarding workers, all of which could have implications for gender equality in the long run. Some of them potentially negative, some of them potentially positive. So it's not all about education, as some studies suggest. Um... I, to I totally agree with, with, yeah. with that, Virginia. I mean, one of the things that's intriguing about the paper we've been doing is that the hypotheses that we were testing only had limited traction. Uh, we've got issues around, well, what were employers doing? Were they discriminating? How do these social norms play out? These are quite tricky things for us to actually capture in data, um, but certainly our analysis is pointing to those overarching issues. Thanks. Um, another question is, um, what do you think is actually happening to the gender pay gap, um, given there's been some contradictory findings? Yes, so I gave the impression in that presentation that there has been gentle convergence over time, but there have been one or two moments in history, world wars and massive policy changes, which have closed the gap. However, we have seen recently with the government's requirement for larger employers to post the mean gender wage gap between men and women, that although the initial couple of years of that reporting was suggesting a reduction in the gender wage gap. I think in the most recent postings, which were just pre-pandemic, things went in the other direction. So there's one or two straws in the wind here, which is suggesting that that convergence is stuttering. That would be extremely worrying. Um, certainly, we haven't seen substantial progress on the gender wage gap for a long time, raising questions about 
policy intervention. If we carried on waiting, the rate of convergence, according to the work that we've been doing recently, is about half a percentage point per year. Many studies point to a gender wage gap in the high teens. That would imply that other things constant, you're not seeing convergence for another 20, 30 years. So there is a prima facie case, I think, for government to look again at what they can do to improve um, the, the gender wage gap in, in favor of women. Clearly, they're not getting the full returns from their educational investments at the moment. And that would imply to me that their productivity is not being fully rewarded in the marketplace. Yeah, there's a next question that um, leads on uh, from this, I expect, which is what's the policy imp implications of this finding? Yeah, so uh, uh, we, there's nothing to be complacent about here. I think there are a couple of key issues. One is how do we drive down the gender wage gap further as we did in the 1970s? Here we do have some new policies which could be powerful, in particular requirements for employers to report these pay gaps. Because if you're seen as an employer that's not doing well, or perhaps has moved down the league in being gender neutral, this will cause you reputational damage as an employer. So we need to evaluate these sorts of policy interventions to see whether they're doing what we might expect them to be doing. But I think we need to supplement them. A good example would be the difficulties that women find in using existing legislation to make a claim for equal pay. That claim ordinarily is based upon equal pay for work of equal value relative to an, a male worker in the same workplace. The problem there, as we've shown in one of our studies under this project, is there's actually quite a lot of gender segregation in the labour market. There are many workplaces where there is no male comparator, making it very hard for a woman to take action under the law. So I think we need to revisit these sorts of things. We do not want the law to be equivalent to going through the eye of a needle in order to bring about gender equality. And I think the third thing we need to be thinking about is how do we evaluate these changes in the labour market, in particular, um, um, the role of working from home and how that might play out in terms of changes in the gender wage gap. The other final thing I'd mention, which we should mention, I think, is hiring discrimination. So although it's illegal in Britain to discriminate on grounds of gender when making appointments uh, to a particular job, unless there's a good reason to do so, what we find from correspondence studies, which send out randomized CVs with just the change of male versus female on the CV, that the callback rates are much, much lower for women most of the time. And this has been a constant for the last 20, 30, 40 years. How do we make progress in tackling hiring discrimination? What are the sources of that discrimination? And how can we construct legislation which tackles it? And what about the uh, compulsory reporting of the pay gap? Do you think that's helpful? I do actually. So we, we ran a um, conference a year and a half ago, I think in Nuremberg, where we got together people who at th this, this 
This requirement is now common in many EU countries. Um, and so many people, many labor economists are evaluating these things. And the general drift seems to be that it is making uh, um, a significant impact on the size of the gender wage gap. Um, and it, it, it could be the reputational damage issue. Um, it could be the, the spillover to the way in which employers are considering and reconsidering their employment and rewarding of women vis-a-vis -vis men. Um, so early, early signs are that that's, that that's going quite well. I think other parts of policy, perhaps more problematic, for example, the issue around quotas for women versus men in the higher echelons of the labor market. We're missing a few of those targets that uh, corporations were trying to achieve uh, a little while ago. So there are issues about the ability of women to break the glass ceiling, as some have called it, and the role of employers and policy uh, in, in, in improving things. Um, thanks. There's the next question. Someone says, I remember some key workers coming back from retirement to help with demand, for example, in hospitals. Does this research include this and was this gendered? Well, that's, um, I, I, I guess we, obviously, when we're talking about that, we're talking about the, the, the oldest birth cohort there for the, the National Child Development Study born in 1958. Um, it's conceivable that we could tease out those people in our data, um, but I suspect that we'd be running into small sample sizes. So whilst that's an interesting issue, I think probably the data that we've been using are not the best to look at that issue. Yeah, I can confirm that the, we looked at different sort of subgroups and um, even comparison. So an interesting comparison is comparing those who were fellows to those who lost their jobs because they're both sort of in the same situation uh, as if they're not working, um, but some of them are still supported financially, some aren't. But even this comparison is quite difficult to um, tease out because the furlough scheme was so commonly used that there aren't even that many people who lost, who lost their jobs. So looking specifically at those who from moved from retirement to employment would be definitely uh, too small a sample to have any meaningful um, conclusions from for us. Um, and the last question is, um, the gender wage gap is normally uh, explained by women's choice of job and choice to be main caretaker of children. Is COVID working from home just an extension of this? Yeah, so it is difficult for us in our analyses to identify the role of choice, preferences of men and women. And this is a long-standing debate in this literature. You have analysts such as Catherine Hakim, who've identified the potential role of female choice in explaining occupations that they go into, and for example, the propensity to take furlough over COVID. However, uh, most economists would argue that many of those quote choices are endogenous in the sense that they're made in part with respect to the expected rewards that you gain from those choices. So for example, a good example would be the likelihood of investing in your human capital is gonna be lower if you 
face the knowledge that you could be discriminated against in the labor market. Um, another issue, another cost is societal norms. If the choices you are making are deemed to be inconsistent with what you view to be societal expectations about who you should be and what you should do, that can be problematic. It causes what psychologists refer to as role conflict. So quite often what appears to be an individual choice is partly determined by socially constructed norms, which some would argue should be challenged. So I think this is an ongoing debate and it's one that we need to think about hard because those issues are central to the paper that we've just presented. Uh, I'm not saying that we can solve them, but they've certainly become central to debate about labor supply um, and uh, rewards in the labor market. What I would say is even if gendered preferences are a factor in all of this, they're not the only one. I've mentioned clear evidence on hiring discrimination. I've also mentioned uh, women not receiving the full rewards from their human capital investments, as indicated by the residual unexplained gender wage gap in most studies that we observe. So these things really need to be identified, but you're right, I think, in asking about what role is played by preferences, and we shouldn't just assume away the idea that those preferences could be different across men and women. Um, Alex is one minute past two o'clock, so I think we've run out of time, unfortunately. Thank you very much for, um, for everybody for attending and for you um, for doing the presentation and stepping in on such a short notice. And um, just to let you know that the next uh, lunchtime lecture will be taking place on Thursday, 28th of April. Um, and we'll be on imagining a home of the future, which brings together diverse voices of those who helped to create story behind the tomorrow's home exhibition. So thank you very much for, uh, to everyone for attending and to Alex for presenting once again and um, see you soon on the next seminar.